I'd like to begin by uh, looking at some basic instructions for sitting meditation in terms of practicing compassion. So in the universal encouragements for the ceremony of sitting meditation, you're instructed to put out some thick matting and put a cushion on top of it. And then various instructions about our posture to sit upright and so on. To put our hands in this meditation mudra. To, again, sit upright, which means not leaning forward or backwards, right or left, and settle into a steady, unmoving sitting posture. To me, this seems like uh, an act of compassion an act of expressing loving-kindness, wishing all beings well by taking this posture. And this posture as an offering to the practice of protecting all beings, to sit upright, protecting all beings who are suffering in the prison of samsara. Then after the posture is offered to the practice of protecting all beings and for the liberation of all beings. And the next thing that's said in that text is think not thinking. How do you think not thinking? Non-thinking. Any of you have, uh, unfamiliar with that that statement? You've all heard it. So this is a excerpt from a conversation between one of the ancestors in our lineage, whose name is. Yaoshan, Wanyi. Yaoshan means medicine mountain. So he was an ancestor, and there's a number of stories about him sitting.
So one of the stories is he's sitting upright, offering himself for the sake of protecting all beings who are suffering. Offering him his sitting upright, offering his upright sitting for the welfare of this world. Medicine Mountain. And a monk comes up to him and says, Sitting like this, immovable, what kind of thinking is there? And Yashan says, Think not thinking. And the monk says, How? Think, not thinking. Or how is think, not thinking? Or how, how can I practice think, not thinking? And Yashan said, non-thinking. So this is an instruction about what kind of thinking is going on in a bodhisattva's life, in a bodhisattva's sitting. Uh, I'm going to bring up... um, this is a Zen story, and uh, also I'm going to bring up some what's called Abhidharma, some uh, some uh, wisdom teachings about the nature of thinking, the nature of consciousness, karmic consciousness, ordinary consciousness, like probably most of us have karmic consciousness right now where we we feel like we're here in this room. Each of us feels like we're in a certain position in this room and there's other people in the room and they appear to be they appear to be other than us. And in karmic consciousness there's many, many afflictions normally inexhaustible afflictions. Inexhaustible cries for compassion arise and cease in this consciousness. Yeah, and um, because there's a sense of self in this consciousness, the self is always accompanied, the Bodhisattva Vasubandhu taught, 
this self is always accompanied by four afflictions that are especially for the self. There's other afflictions there too, like greed, hatred and delusion, fear, and so on. But there's three, four particular uh, afflictions that come up with the sense of self. The first one is self-confusion. The self, second one is self-pride. Third one is uh, self-esteem. And the fourth one is self-love. These are not the self, but they are afflictions that come up with it. And these four afflictions are calling for compassion. They, they're, they're stressful and painful. The self-confusion is um, like uh, it's a confusion to... Um, Like um, it's 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 a confusion. It's a it's a it's a phenomena. It's a it's a thought that um, this is the self, and that's not the self. This is mine. This is the self, and this is mine, and this is not mine. And the situation is quite confused. But there's a lot of confusion around the self. And there's also the confusion or the affliction, which is it takes the form of the an idea. So you got a self and there's an idea that the self owns things that are in the consciousness. So you got the self you got various things in the consciousness, and then you have this afflictive thought that this self owns some of the things. But that's a thought. It's not true that the self owns these things in the consciousness. Like, it could be, there's a sense of self, then there's the idea that this self owns some of those things. And some of those things are like your robes, your shoes, your house, your car. Those things can appear. And there's the idea that this self owns those things. But also there's the idea <clears throat> that the self owns uh, the greed, the hatred, and the fear that are in the consciousness. But the self doesn't own these, these emotions. It's, it lives with them, but it doesn't own them. So the consciousness arises with a sense of self and, for example, fear. They rise together. They're brothers and sisters. And hopefully, with practice, they can become friends. Who's friends? It's the self and the fear. But it's going to be hard for them to be friends because we have an idea that the self owns the fear. 
We don't usually have the another affliction is less, much less common, but it's possible. And and actually, since we would put it in the consciousness for the purpose of meditation, here's another idea, which is the fear owns the self. But we don't usually say, I'm the fear's self. We say, the fear is mine. It's my fear. But it should be reversible, because they, they arise together in the, in the environment of consciousness. It's an affliction to think that the self owns the fear, that the, the affliction owns the faith, the samadhi, the wholesome thought, but the self, this is an affliction. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a falsehood. And if we don't believe it at all, then it's not an affliction anymore. It's just, a, it just if we don't believe it at all, we means, oh, here there's a self and there's a delusion that the self owns stuff in this consciousness. But that's why we want to work with this situation with compassion to discover that the self doesn't own anything in the consciousness and nothing in the consciousness owns anything in the consciousness, including nothing in the consciousness owns the self. You don't own, the self doesn't own it, the beliefs that are in the consciousness and the beliefs don't own the self. They co-arise and co-cease. But again, for most of us, there's the idea the self owns stuff. Then there's another affliction, which is the idea, another false idea, that the self is operating the consciousness. That the activities of consciousness, the self is, they're the self's activities. The self's doing what appears in consciousness. Or not doing it. That's again a delusion, a falsehood, and if we believe it, we suffer. And other afflictions like this, there's an idea the self, again, is is, um, better than other things. It's really wonderful. And it's better than... (coughs) better than other objects and other selves. That's another affliction. Now, the definition of uh, karma given by the Buddha is in Sanskrit, chetana which can be translated as intention, volition, and the Chinese character that's used to translate this, char- this, this phenomena in consciousness, which is the definition of karma, is translated with the word that means thinking. What is this uh, chetana, what is this thing that's the definition of karma? What's karma? Karma translated as action. But what's the definition of karma? The definition of karma is thinking. 
thinking defines what the, what the action is. The action. And what's thinking? Thinking is the momentary overall pattern of a moment of self-consciousness. So we're talking about self-consciousness. There's other kinds of awareness, but this is self-consciousness. And there's a pattern there. Like there's, there's some greed, there's some fear, maybe there's some diligence. There's usually not, in a moment, fear, greed, and hate. Usually it doesn't work that way. Fear, greed, or greed, fear. Another moment there might be fear and hatred. And then there might be a wish to do something harmful when you have fear and hate. And the wish to do something harmful is another phenomenon in this space of consciousness. Or there might be the thought to not do something harmful, even though there's fear and hate. There might be a thing, a wish or an intention to not harm. Lots of possibilities, and we can talk about all the possibilities forever. There's infinite possibilities of combinations of these different phenomena in consciousness. And the, but in a given moment of experience, there is a pattern there. And the pattern is called, in, in Sanskrit, chetana. In English, we can call it thinking or intention. The overall pattern. And in, and in this consciousness, or these consciousnesses, where there's an overall pattern, there's also the affliction in that this self, which is part of the pattern, is operating the thinking. I'm thinking. I'm, I'm doing the thinking. I'm doing the opera. I'm doing the, I made the landscape. I, in other words, I'm acting. I'm doing this karma, which means I'm thinking this way. So you combine the sense of self with the overall pattern and the delusion that the self is operating the overall pattern, which is just a false conception. And it looks and naturally uh, allures us into thinking that it's real. And it's not. Again, if you just see it as a <laughs> funny story, suddenly it's not an affliction anymore. But we have a long history of thinking that this pattern, and we can learn to see the pattern, we, the, the, self, the self owns it and is operating it and in control of it. This consciousness is sometimes called the headquarters of our life. We have other forms of consciousness. We have other forms of awareness, like our unconscious. But this is the headquarters. This is the command center, etc. 
And we have these computers now which are modeled on this delusion. Particularly these personal computers, these cell phones, they have a command center, right? The overall pattern uh, is not itself um, necessarily an affliction, only if you believe it is. There's, but in the overall pattern, there can be many afflictions. These overall patterns are also defined as wholesome, unwholesome, and neutral. So individual things are not called wholesome. Like uh, greed is not called wholesome, and it's also not called unwholesome. It's an affliction. It's a it's a delusion. It's a it's a defilement. But the overall pattern of all the different afflictions, that overall pattern is defined as three ways: wholesome, unwholesome, and can't tell uh, where this. You know, whether this is a wholesome or unwholesome overall pattern. So thinking is wholesome, unwholesome, and neutral from the point of view of looking at the overall quality of the consciousness and does it seem to be leading to benefit or harm? Or is it kind of unclear? And it always is either going towards benefit, harm, or unclear. That's overall pattern. And again, in that overall pattern, there is often the affliction of thinking that I, I make it wholesome, unwholesome, and neutral. So the monk asks the teacher, when you're sitting, teacher, what kind of, what's, you know, what kind of uh, overall pattern is there in your consciousness? What kind of thinking is going on? Is your thinking afflicted? Like, in your thinking, is there like the belief that you're in control of your thinking? Do you have that kind of thinking, like most people? Do you have wholesome thought? Are you have when you're sitting? Is it wholesome thinking or unwholesome thinking? Is it skillful or unskillful? What kind of thinking? What kind of thinking is going on in the bodhisattva's sitting in the bodhisattva's zazen? Is it wholesome, unwholesome, or neutral? That's what he's asking. And the teacher doesn't say it's wholesome, unwholesome, or neutral. He doesn't say that. He says, thinking, not thinking. Now, some people translate it, not too much, but some people translate it. Thinking is not thinking. But that's not a good translation. It doesn't really say thinking is not thinking. It says thinking, not thinking. And you can go thinking, 
not thinking, thinking, not thinking, not thinking, thinking, not thinking, 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 but for short, thinking, not thinking. That's the kind of thinking that's going on in the bodhisattva's mind. In other words, in the bodhisattva's mind, there's an understanding that this thinking really is not thinking. That's not what it is. Well, what is it? Well, for example, it is the light shining from every pore of the Buddha's body. That's what it is. (laughs) And every aspect of it is like that too. But for short, it's not what you think it is. Thinking is not how it, this pattern of, of consciousness is not really how it looks. How you're thinking is not how you think you're thinking. Think how you're thinking is not how it appears. How it appears is an illusory representation of how it is. So, it's not. A is not A. Thinking is not thinking. So in the, in, the, in the sitting of the Bodhisattva, thinking is not thinking. Which means all these afflictions are not all these afflictions. And also, not all these afflictions is all these afflictions. And this way that thinking is not thinking is the way thinking and not thinking are constantly pivoting on each other. Some people might think that Zen meditation, or certainly some Buddhist meditations, is meditating and there's no thinking. That would be the same as there's no consciousness. And there are times when there's no consciousness. That is a possible situation for living beings. When? When you're, in, when you're asleep and there's no dreams, there's no consciousness. There's cognitive activity, but it's the cognitive activity of your unconscious cognition, you know, working with your body, if, that, if the unconscious cognition would stop you, you would die. But your body is warm and keeps the unconscious cognitive processes going when you're asleep and there's no dreaming, no conscious activity, no consciousness where there's a self. When there's dreaming, there's, it's different from when your eyes are open, but there's a self there. And there's also the idea that the self is doing stuff. So dreaming consciousness is also deluded consciousness, karmic consciousness. And karma is operated, is, is being created when we're dreaming. But sometimes there's no, there's no dreaming, there's no consciousness. That happens to us, some of us on a regular basis. But at that moment, we are alive and we don't have self-consciousness. Another time it happens is in comas, 
or other kinds of brain disease. Another time it happens is in special yogic trances where consciousness is highly, which is, is really attenuated to be almost non-existent in that, in that samadhi, in that, in that dhyana. So there are states where there's no consciousness. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the Zen teacher is sitting, there is consciousness, and the, the monk's asking, what kind of thinking is going on in the consciousness? And he says, the kind of thinking that's going on is not thinking. And also the not thinking that's going on is thinking. That's what's going on for me. I don't, have, I don't just have no thinking. I have thinking, which is no, not thinking. And I have not thinking, which is different from no thinking. There's a character for not, and there's a character for no. Like there isn't any. Like the famous moo means there isn't any. But he doesn't say, when the monk says what kind of thinking he says, he doesn't say thinking where there's no thinking. He says thinking which is not thinking. So each of us is not each of us. It's not that each of us is, is nothing. We are completely not what we are. And that's part of the story, but not the whole story. We also, in not being what we are, is how we really are. In not being how we are, is how we really are. The, what's going on for the, for the bodhisattva is this pivotal activity of thinking, not thinking, of karmic consciousness, not karmic consciousness. Not abandoning karmic consciousness and not being stuck in it. Because what's going on is the pivotal activity where we're not stuck in thinking or not thinking. This is the Ishvara. This is the self-existent liberation of the Bodhisattva mind, which, by the way, is contemplating all beings while this pivoting is going on. Liberated Bodhisattva, what kind of thinking? Thinking, not thinking. Now, this does not mean, I don't think, that the Bodhisattva's mind never has wholesome thoughts or unwholesome thoughts. They might. But if they have a consciousness where the thinking is wholesome, that wholesome thought is not that wholesome thought. That wholesome thinking is not wholesome thinking. If they have unwholesome thought, which is not, that's not that nice, but anyway, if they have unwholesome thought, that unwholesome thought is pivoting with not unwholesome thought. So in the case of if there's any unwholesome thought, there's liberation. From, in the midst of thinking, there's active liberation and saving beings. There is the bodhisattva vow. It's working 
even in unwholesomeness. Because unwholesomeness is not unwholesomeness, and not unwholesomeness is wholesome. And not unwholesomeness is not not wholesomeness. No. Unwholesomeness is, is pivoting with not unwholesomeness. And wholesomeness is pivoting with not wholesomeness. Whatever kind of consciousness the Bodhisattva has, it's pivoting with not that. Not that. It's always free, and it's bringing everybody along with that. It's bringing everybody else's consciousnesses, which are wholesome or unwholesome or neutral. They are also included in this thinking, not thinking. This is the Buddha. This is Zazen of the Buddhas. This is the pivotal activity of the Buddhas. And as I've mentioned before, many places, the character which I'm translating as pivotal means pivotal. (laughs) But it also means necessary, and it also means uh, essential. This pivoting of thinking and not thinking is essential to the Buddha activity. It is necessary for Buddha activity. Buddha activity is not just a wholesome state of consciousness. But if there is a wholesome state of consciousness, Buddha activity is the wholesome state of consciousness, is not a wholesome state of consciousness. The Buddha activity is not stuck in a full-fledged, wonderful, wholesome state of consciousness, even if that's what's happening. And of course, it's not stuck in an unwholesome state. That's the kind of thinking that's going on in the consciousness of the Bodhisattva Zen Master. I could go on like this, pivoting like this for quite a while, and I will. (laughs) But I also can shift to another dimension, if you're ready. Are you ready? Huh? You are? Are you ready? You look uncertain. (laughs) Okay, here we go. How? How? Think not thinking. That's, I don't know what you're talking about, but anyway, whatever you're doing, how? <laughs> I, I, mean, I would like to try this on, this thinking not thinking, but how, how can that happen? How can that be? Well, it's already, it's, already, it's already the case. That's the way things already are. But most people are just thinking, and they don't know about that, that, that the thinking's not thinking. They don't know that. They think the thinking's what they what they think it is. They think of thinking on top of thinking. And some people told me during this retreat, I'm always thinking. And I say, that's reality of your consciousness. You are always thinking. Now, how can we be always thinking, not thinking? And uh, Yaoshan didn't sit when the monk said, what kind of thinking is going on? He didn't say, I'm always thinking, not thinking. That would be bragging. <laughs> he just said, right now, 
thinking, not thinking. And the monk says, how? And Yashan says, non-thinking. So for this retreat, I, I've been emphasizing non-thinking. I haven't been so much emphasizing that thinking, not thinking. But now I'm bringing it up. I've been emphasizing non-thinking. Non-thinking is how we think not thinking, which is wisdom. So a little clue I got from the great ancestor Dogen, the amazing person named Dogen, whatever that was, Just got this image up. Uh, Asian monks, they have these little, this big hats, you know, and they often have these, <laughs> excuse me, but this is just an example of something funny I just thought of. So they have these, they have these hats on and then they have their chin rest <laughs> to hold their hat on, on their chin. See, it's kind of like Dogenu's had a little mask on <laughs> when he was on pilgrimage. Anyway, whoever Dogen was, I think he, he must have been a, a wonderful person to meet. And he, he has this teaching he's telling us about. He thinks this teaching is really, really the best description of Zazen, he said. There's a lot of them, but this is his favorite, which he gives us in Fukan Zazengi, Universal Abominations. But there's another text called The 37 Wings of Enlightenment, where he goes through the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Seven Limbs of Enlightenment, and so on. And uh, in the 37 Wings, Part of the 37 wings is, of course, the Eightfold Path. And then he goes through the Eightfold Path. First is right view. In other words, wisdom. In other words, think not, th- think not thinking. That's the first. That's right view. Right view is think not thinking. Or thinking not thinking. That's right view. The next one is called sometimes right intention, but again, intention is thinking. The intention of your consciousness in a given moment is your thinking. So sometimes translated as right intention, but also translated as right thinking. What's right thinking? Right thinking is also coming from Understanding that thinking is not thinking. So right view is number one. Number two is the thinking that you do when you understand that. And and Dogen says, talking about right thinking, he says that's non-thinking. So he connects in that fascicle the, the second of the Eightfold Path to back to Yarshan's non-thinking. He didn't say right thinking is not thinking. He said it's non-thinking. So I'm proposing to you, very simply, that non-thinking 
is practicing compassion with the thinking. Whatever the thinking is, whatever aspect of it you're looking at, practicing compassion with that overall pattern, the thinking, or any individual part of it, like fear, greed, pride, um, self-righteousness, confusion, pain, pleasure, in other words, feeling, all the different elements in the overall pattern to practice compassion with all these things. That's non-thinking, which is also translated as beyond thinking. So this way of relating to the thinking is beyond the thinking. It is Buddha's compassion hovering and hovering above the field of of confusion and thinking, hovering above it and embracing it, listening to it, witnessing it. All these different elements are calling for compassion. All these different opinions and views and thoughts, they're all calling for compassion. When the compassion embraces them, This is non-thinking's work. And that embrace gives rise to thinking, not thinking. That's how we enter into the pivotal activity, where our karmic consciousness is not our karmic consciousness, and not our karmic consciousness is our karmic consciousness, where we're free of our karmic consciousness without getting rid of it, we embrace our, all aspects of our karmic consciousness, all those afflictions that are embraced by compassion. And when they're embraced by compassion, thinking becomes not, is revealed. Thinking is revealed as not thinking. There's nothing in the moment of consciousness that's not calling for compassion. Everything, nothing in Nothing. Even the thought, I want to get out of here. I've had it. I don't want to live anymore. That's just another thing that's calling for compassion. Or I want to live forever. That's also calling for compassion. Or I'm not sure whether I do or not. That's calling for compassion. You name it, it wants compassion. It does not want to be destroyed. It's not saying, please destroy me. Even if it says, please destroy me, it really means, please love me. Like when a teenager goes in her bedroom and slams the door and says, I don't want to ever talk to you again. That's their way of saying, love me. It's also their way of saying, I love you. I see friends shaking hands saying, how do you do? They're really saying, I love you. That's what they say in New Orleans, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's what we're really saying. And when you see thinking, not thinking, you realize everything's saying, I love you, and please love me. Don't destroy me. Don't eliminate me. Don't disrespect me. Respect me. Listen to me. 
don't interrupt me. Protect me. Honor me. And also, everything's listening to us when we cry for the same compassion. So everything's saying, please respect me, and everything's listening to us say, please respect me. Please take care of me, and I'm listening to you tell me that you want me to take care of you. That's non-thinking is to do that work with the thinking. And, and there I'm emphasizing what is usually not emphasized is that non-thinking is compassion. And compassion gives birth to this wonderful wisdom of the Zen ancestor, thinking, not thinking. And Dogen tells us, <coughs> here it is. Think not thinking. How? Non-thinking. But he didn't... And also, if you look in the Buddha's description of right thinking, what is it? It's let go of hatred, let go of greed, and let go of harming. In other words, be compassionate. Think that way. So again, I, I'm, telling, I'm giving you a view of uh, the Zen instruction of, what, of how to think in Zazen, coming from Yaoshan and through Dogen, that includes practicing compassion with the thinking to realize the true nature of thinking, not thinking, and the true nature of not thinking, thinking. Is that clear? Kind of clear. The hard part is people can't believe that this current example of thinking should be given compassion. Because the elements in the field of thinking, they, they do say to us, you know, I hate you. I don't respect you. You know, they, it doesn't sound like they're saying, I'm suffering, please, please, please listen to me. Please respect me. I don't respect you. It doesn't sound like, please respect me. But that, of course, <laughs> that's what everybody wants. Because that's, that's reality. Really, we do respect each other. But it doesn't sound like that. It doesn't look like that. And also, as I've talked to several of you, we're in a situation now where some people respect those people. And they're happy about that. People who respect people are happy when they're respecting people. And if you respect people, they usually think you're quite intelligent. (laughs) (laughs) And you are. That's a good way to use your mind is to respect people. So I know some people who respect some people and some other people don't respect those people. And my friends who respect those people don't respect the people who don't respect those people. <laughs> but we have to respect the people who don't respect, because they want respect too. Who don't respect us, 
or don't respect our friends. And we're having a hard time with that. You know? We have certain people, we're just really having a hard time respecting them. But I just, you know, one of the advantages of being old is that, if I, especially if I get much older, you know, people in their 70s are going to be like my grandchildren. And I, when I see 70-year-olds acting like children, you know, maybe I'll be able to say, oh, it's like, that's like my granddaughter or my grandson. They're so, they're so deluded and, so, and they're so frightened. Even though they're 70 years old or 80 years old, they're still frightened. They're just like my precious grandchild. And I respect them. Do I trust them to make a good decision? No. <laughs> Would I make them a leader of a group? No. They're just frightened, confused children who are crying out in pain. And if you get old enough, everybody looks like that. That's how, every, that's how we all look to Buddha. Precious grandchildren, or great, great, children of all generations. The Buddha loves all the living beings. You know, I could say, Buddha loves so-and-so. Buddha loves people who are not kind to other people. But also, Buddha says, you're not my disciple. <laughs> you're not doing my practice. If you, if you hate people, you're not my student. But, you know... I'm devoted to you, and I'll give my life for you, but you're not doing the practice. If, by the way, if you want to know, you're not doing it. You used to mean, yesterday you were my disciple, you were, you were being kind, you were, and yesterday you were my disciple, and I loved you. And today you're not being kind, and you're not my disciple, and I still love you. And I'll love you even if you never, but you, you will eventually. I love you even when you're not doing the practice. Buddha loves beings who are fighting the practice. In other words, not being kind to others, or being kind to some but not others. And again, I find the people I know who are devoted to being kind to all people, they have a hard time being kind to people who are not kind to some people. That's the world we live in. And I want to be compassionate to the people who are, you know. Like my granddaughter, she says, I hate so-and-so. And her mother doesn't, her mother taught her that. And I, I, I love these people who hate people. And I don't, <laughs> and her mother knows a disciple of Buddha does not hate. Her mother knows that. <laughs> and she can say, you know, right after she has said, right after she says, "I hate so and so," she can say, "A disciple of Buddha does not hate." <laughs> I don't have to say it. I don't, even though I just said it. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm I'm working at making no exceptions for whatever is in our karmic consciousness, and so. Sitting is a nice time because you're not talking to people. They're not insulting you, you know, and so on. They're not being mean to anybody else. You're just working with your own mind. 
And uh, one of you brought up this issue of you have judgments in your mind, right? Have you, ever seen, have you seen any judgments in your consciousness lately? And sometimes people call it judgmental. So the, the, uh, the distribution of the use of the word judgmental in the 20th century and in the 19th and 20th century, they had like the frequencies going like this down close to the bottom, of like close to zero, the word judgmental. And then in the 1950s, it went way up. It's become a very popular word. Judgments, not judgment. Judgment also probably is more flat. I'll check that out. But judgmental was pretty flat through the 19th and early 20th century. And then the 50s, it went way up. And it's kind of leveled off now. Judgmental originally means uh, uh, being, being able to judge. But it's now become being judging negatively. So judgmental has become a negative word. And a lot of Zen students have this thing in their mind called ju- being judgmental. In other words, they're looking down on people. And they're <laughs> and they hate it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or at least they're embarrassed and in pain because. They do not like to look down on people. We're not supposed to be looking down on anybody from our superior position. But they notice it's, it's in there. I'm better than that person. It, they notice this negative judgment of other people. And that's a popular thing going on now. Especially, again, I shouldn't say especially. Anyway, I know Zen students, and for it's a special problem for Zen students, and I've seen that for decades. If I was practicing in 1920, I probably wouldn't have seen it so much. <laughs> and then I say to the person, that judgmental, that judgmentalness is calling for compassion. When you notice a judgmental thought in your mind, listen to it, look at it with compassion. It wants compassion and the suffering that comes with it. Don't try to get rid of this thing called, this terrible thing of looking down on people. Don't try to get rid of it. It's a terrible thing that's calling for love and support. It, It wants to be liberated. This is a house cleaning thing. Suzuki, I don't know what was going on in his head, but I almost never heard him being judgmental of people, and in particular of other teachers. He almost never talked down about other teachers. That was a good example. Maybe he was thinking, oh, that person not nearly as good as me. I don't know. <laughs> but I never heard him say anything like that. He respected people who Teachers, he respected teachers who I thought, woohoo. Hmm. You know, what an arrogant priest that, that is. But he respect he he treated that arrogant priest with respect. Wow. Good job, Roshi. <laughs> <laughs> Everything in your 
So the house cleaning is everything in your consciousness is calling for compassion. So, you know, whisk away the cobwebs of resisting to be compassionate towards it. And thinking that we should we should get rid of the judgment get the judgmentalness out of this consciousness. Also, if, if you thought, I, want, I need more judgmentalness, then that should be treated with compassion too. I'm not judgmental enough. That's another thing, which I haven't heard about much. <laughs> People say, I think I should be more judgmental. I, maybe I'm brain dead. <laughs> yeah, you have to be kind of smart to be judgmental, right? <laughs> complicated mental operation. Judge and then put yourself above it. So, okay, and maybe that's enough for the rest of our lives. Anything that you want to bring up before we have lunch? Yes? I heard you say several times to protect living beings. Wait a second, let me put my aids on. Yes. It's well. It's protection from harm. Protection from harm, like um, let's say a judgmental thought arises, and you instead of trying to get rid of it, which would be harmful, it's harmful to try to get rid of stuff that's in your mind. It's disrespectful. I propose. So rather than trying to get rid of this obnoxious thought, this painful thought. Listen to it. I hear you, sweetheart. I'm listening. I'm here for you. And so if you treat it that way, you protect it from harm. You protect your own pain. You can harm your pain. Or you can, and you can harm the causes of your pain. Like being judgmental is a cause of pain for you. So being kind to the judgmentalness protects the judgmentalness and helps it evolve to be the light of Buddha's body. And it also will protect you from the pain that would happen if you're not kind to it. Now, if you do that with your own mind, that just happens to protect other beings who have other problems, or that same problem. That protects them right then. And it also protects them when they when they come and talk to you and and they tell you about this. You say, "Oh, I've had, I have that problem too, and this is what I do with it." And it really, it it doesn't harm it doesn't harm me. <laughs> it doesn't harm me to be kind to my my own uh, delusions. 
in matter of fact, it, it protects me, and it, prote- it protects my delusions, not so that they can grow bigger and more terrible, it protects them from getting bigger, and it protects them from becoming more harmful. It converts them into the light of wisdom. It protects them from delusion. But protecting without pushing anything away. Protecting without reinforcing duality. That's the kind of protection we're talking about here. So, sometimes I've heard the expression to acceptance rather than pushing away. Accepting something that we would normally not push away. I think it seems more Acceptance is, is an element in the process, yes. But it's a little bit more active than just accepting. Like, you can accept something. You might think, well, I'm, you know, like, you might say something to me and I accept it, but then I don't keep listening to you. Yeah, I accept it, but, you know, I, and maybe I, I accept you and look away. Or I accept you, but I don't realize that my acceptance is my offering to you. And I, I accept you and I... I accept you and I care about you. So yes, I accept you and I do that as because because I care about you and because you're important and because I want to practice generosity and I want you to learn how to be generous too and I want and I appreciate you helping me learn how to do it too. But acceptance is part of that. It's it's, it's not the whole thing but it's like a lubrication that helps the whole thing work. But it's it's it doesn't necessarily capture the active generosity and carefulness and patience and so on. But it's part of all of them. So it, it, we have to sort of, and acceptance is also part of starting to accept that we have done something, uns, that we have something unskillful in our mind. Well, I accept that my consciousness is unskillful. And now I can say I'm sorry. I can acknowledge it and say I'm sorry. But I first start by accepting it. No, I could also say I could also confess that I don't accept it. <laughs> Start there, and confessing it may help me accept it. So acceptance is a definite ingredient, and of course, <laughs> not accepting is also a common thing. So both of those are important things to keep an eye out for. Yes. Can you help me understand the distinction between unwholesome and afflictive? Yeah. Um, in, you know, in the usual Buddhist way of using the word unwholesome, it's a more general term for consciousness. Afflictions are more, um, are more you know, specific. So afflictions are inexhaustible, but we don't say, stay, you know, uh, but wholesome, unwholesome, and neutral, there's just three. There's are three basic meditation categories to put on the overall consciousness. And there's afflictive elements in, every, in most consciousnesses, but they're specific like pride, disrespect, fear, hatred, pain, uh, attachment, hate, uh, you know, uh, and so on. Uh, uh, turning towards something, turning away from something, focusing on something, 
So all these things, and 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 also that everything's tainted by misunderstanding the relationship of the self to these things. So everything becomes afflictive because of the afflictions around the self. But there are more individual things, and different consciousness have different elements. And unwholesomeness is usually used for the overall view. Where does this moment of con- this? Where does this moment of thinking seem to be going? Does it seem to be going in a beneficial direction or unbeneficial? And we don't really know because beneficial has to do with its co- its consequence, and we can't see the consequence right now until we're really, 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 really awakened. Then we can kind of, Buddha can see. Oh, that's un- that's going to be. I'm an unwholesome. I don't have kind of unfortunate, painful consequence. So the wholesome has to do with the effects it will have. Afflictive more have to do with the pain right now. That's another difference. Right now I feel pain and discomfort for what's going on. But you could feel that in, in a wholesome state of consciousness. And being aware that you're in pain contributes to it being a wholesome state of consciousness. And vice versa, you could have quite a pleasant state of consciousness. Yeah, and maybe no greed or hate, but some confusion, so you're not paying attention to it, and that might be quite unwholesome. Particularly if you're like driving a truck or something, you're not you're not attending to what's going on with you. That could be very unwholesome, even though there's no greed or hate. And also, there could be greed or hate but a sincere embarrassment about it and, and, and uh, you know, wishing to be uh, really kind to it so it doesn't cause any trouble. And that could be quite a wholesome state, even though it has these afflictions in it. So a mind that has afflictions, full of afflictions even, and is being kind, cared for, it's a pretty wholesome state. A mind that has nothing wrong with it, but where there's no care, is very unwholesome. Like, it's, it's a little bit more difficult to define what's wholesome. But generally, if you, if you care, that's conducive to wholesome, but doesn't guarantee it. But if you don't care, like if you don't care whether you do wholesome or unwholesome, then for sure it's unwholesome. So there's two dharmas where you don't care what you do and you don't care what people think of you. Those are two attitudes, and if you have one or both of those, you have definitely an unwholesome state. It's basically you don't care about karma. But if you care about karma, even if, and there's, and there's tons of greed and hate, it still might not be wholesome. But it's not definitely unwholesome because it's a good sign that you do care what you do, and you do care what people feel about what you're doing. So that's not always present in every wholesome state, but the lack of it is never present in a wholesome state. You can't have wholesome, you can't practice if you don't care about your body and mind and the consequences it has for other people. That's, Buddha says, that is the most unwholesome state is when you don't have those two dharmas of being concerned about, you know, basically self-respect, and decorum, if you don't care, then yeah, that's the worst, which is related to the worst, the worst wrong view, 
is to think that karma doesn't have consequence. The worst wrong view is, is to think that your thinking doesn't have consequence. And therefore you don't have to pay attention to it. That's the worst. <clears throat> but even if you don't have that terrible wrong view, you still might have an unwholesome state. So, but we have, we, we generally do have views of, you know, like people tell me about wholesome states of consciousness, I say, that sounds good. You know, I don't know for sure. Seems good to me. Probably have a, I think it's going to have a good consequence that you, you know, appreciate all these people, that you, like you appreciate everybody. Sounds good. Like, and you want to benefit all beings. Sounds like a good state of consciousness to me. I, I don't know for sure, but I think it's going to, I think it's going to bring benefit, this consciousness. And when people tell me some other consciousness, they say, yeah, if you want to know, I think that's pretty unwholesome, that, 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 that thought. But I want to, I, well, we have to practice compassion to that. Not have to. Bodhisattvas vow to. So they vow to, we say, literally, you know, the Zen Center says, delusions are inexhaustible. But delusions is an abbreviation of greed, hate, and delusion, and all the other afflictions. So really, the, the, the original Chinese says afflictions are, are inexhaustible. They are. But you can have afflictions in a consciousness, and the overall consciousness can be wholesome. And it would be, I would think it would be, if, you, if there was a sincere feeling an intention to be compassionate, no matter how much afflictions are present. Like right now, I just feel so much compassion, and I want to continue to feel so much compassion for all these afflictions. That sounds like a wholesome state, even though it's jam-packed full of afflictions. But as I say again, there could be not very many, and and I could just have one affliction, which is I don't want to pay attention to them. <laughs> and that sounds pretty bad to me pretty mean, probably going to have really bad effect. This is, this is early Buddhist teaching. Examine your consciousness, check it out, meditate on it, and the Buddha, I didn't hear the Buddha say, examine it with compassion. But of course, that's the way the Buddha examines consciousnesses, right? Her own or other people's. Oh, let me look in your consciousness. Tell me about it. I love. I have just so much appreciation for your consciousness. But there's all these afflictions in here. I know. I know. I know. <laughs> but it's it's just it's it's really wonderful. Still, it's still precious, even though it's full of afflictions. Which reminds me of a story about. You know, Pablo Casals, he was a a cellist, and um, he was giving a class to other cellists. And the guy who wrote, this is a guy, I read this in a book written by a cellist about his interactions with Pablo Casals, the cellist. So the old Pablo Casals, this, this guy, I don't know how old this person was, maybe he was in his 30s or 40s, and Pablo Casals was in his 90s, and he was studying Pablo Casals and telling us about this old master. 
And so this guy performed for Pablo Casals, and after he was done, <clears throat> Pablo Casals just expressed great appreciation for his playing of the cello. And the guy, afterwards, the guy thought he, you know, he he was uh, he wasn't being sincere. He was he was just noticing, you know, what I did good and acted like all I did was good. And later they talked, and he said, you know. I feel uncomfortable about what you said in praising my my uh, my playing because I made these I did these things which weren't so good. And Pablo Casals said, "Didn't you do this really well?" He said, "Yeah. Didn't you do that really well? Didn't you do that really well? Didn't you do that?" Really? The guy said, "Oh yeah, right. Uh huh." Well, that's what I, I I noted what you did well. And other people can tell you what, what you didn't do well. But I'm just going to tell you about what you did well. But Pablo Casal saw those, the other things. He saw those too. But he didn't tell the guy. He told the guy how to be appreciative and also notice your mistakes, but be kind to your mistakes. Then, then you can learn better. We're, we're going to make mistakes, right? Bodhisattvas make mistakes, and and also, if it's anybody who's not a bodhisattva, they make mistakes too. But we can learn from our mistakes if we're kind to them. And part of being kind to them is to say, "I think I made a mistake, and I'm sorry." That's that's kind, and that turns the Dharma wheel. And the Buddha said that in the early teachings in the middle teachings, and in the final teaching. Yes. What time is it, by the way? It is uh, 11.45. Okay, yes. Could you explain what you mean by the Buddha's body? In that example you gave from the Avatamsaka Sutra, you said that. Uh, yeah, there were this, we, at the point of the Avatamsaka Sutra being written, there's like three bodies. Early Buddhism had two, which was the, the, the appearance of the Buddha as, a, for example, a person, or could be appear other ways too, but anyway, the, the, a, a transformation of Buddha in a way that you can, like a magical creation, created version of a Buddha called the transformation body, which in, 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 looks like a man. Uh, in India. And then there's the true body of Buddha, which is the Dharmakaya, which is perfect wisdom, which is the actual reality realized of the nature of the universe. That's, that's a Buddha body, Dharma body. It's, the, it's, the rea- it's reality embodied as the Buddha. It's the realization of how we're actually related and support each other throughout the universe, those two bodies. And then later there came a third body, which is the bliss body, which is the the bliss that comes with understanding the relationship between the form of Buddha and the reality of Buddha. So that that light is like the the 
seeing the light coming from the Buddha's body is like the, the bliss body. It's the enjoyment of this uh, body which is, which is unconstructed and invisible, but is the true nature of all things. So that, that, that would be like, I would call that the, the bliss body or the reward body for practicing. Or I also sometimes call it the Bodhisattva Social Club. <laughs> Which is how we work together studying the, the, the way Buddha appears and the way Buddha is beyond an appearance. And how the way is beyond appearance is how all the appearances are working together. That understanding is not an appearance. It's the reality of our life with with not just my life, but our life inter interrelating. That's a Dharmakaya. That's perfect wisdom. And then there's an enjoyment of that sometimes, like hearing a teaching which is telling us that everybody is the light of this invisible Dharma body Buddha. Arachana is the Dharmapati Buddha. But we can see the light of Dharmapati Buddha by looking at people and looking at our afflictions. So that's, oh yeah, there's the Dharmakaya in that affliction. That's, and seeing that and telling our friends about it, that's our Bodhisattva social club. And that's, and that's, and that's blissful. It's blissful to see the invisible shining from the visible. Without getting rid of the visible, ordinary person, you see the light of the transcendent Buddha. Pretty good, huh? (laughs) Also, I just want to parenthetically mention that I was talking to somebody recently, and they're telling me about the way Jesus' face looked. I would, I would say maybe the way Jesus' face looked um, after he died, you know. Because on the cross, actually, I think he, he grimaced a little bit now and then. But after he died, when he was lying on his mother's arms, the look of his face. And I said, yeah, I heard Mary, the, the novelist Mary McCarthy said, if you look at the paintings of Jesus' face, uh, you know, after he's after he's dead, before he was resurrected, actually, but after he was dead, it looks like a man who just post orgasm, very relaxed, post bliss. But we we don't so much have pictures of Buddha that way because Buddha is has resurrected from that from that bliss is now eyes are open and I'm ready to teach and Jesus also I guess resurrected from that and then said okay now let's continue the work but there was a little moment of bliss before that maybe in certain certain people's pictures of Jesus so that's the bliss body that comes when you I guess you give up all your attachments and and open to like, yeah, 
everybody is the light of Buddha. Okay, I'm not resisting that. I accept that. I'm enjoying that. And it's a reward for me believe, you know, contemplating the teachings of the Avatamsaka Sutra or whatever sutra. Is that enough for today? <laughs>